Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot of news to talk about today, including some very sad news that we'll start the show with. But let me bring in the panel and introduce them before we get to that. It's Tuesday, which means that senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman, is with us today. Thank you for being here uh, tomorrow. We're also joined by Mariella Romero, who's the Compute Community Empowerment Director at Univision, um, Jennifer McCoy, political science professor at Georgia State University, and Charles Bullock, political science professor at the University of Georgia. And, and I, I apologize to all of you for going through the introductions relatively quickly, but I really do want to get to a very sad piece of news to uh, start the show today. Um, we just learned in the last basically hour that former United States Senator Max Cleland passed away last night, apparently of heart failure. He was 79 years old. Max Cleland um, spent most of his adult life in a wheelchair. He was a triple amputee, uh, wounded grievously during his service in Vietnam. He, was, he and his uh, men were getting off a helicopter near Quezon, um, when Cleveland, the last one on the helicopter, noticed there was a loose grenade uh, in the helicopter. He grabbed it to try to throw it out. It exploded underneath him. Uh, he lost both legs and most of his right arm and spent his entire life in that wheelchair after that incident. And yet, he also devoted his whole life to public service. He served in the state senate not long after returning from Vietnam. He went on to become Secretary of State of Georgia. He eventually served in the United States Senate, winning the seat that um, Sam Nunn had uh, just given up and retired from. And after his one term in the Senate, went on to be the head of Veterans Affairs under the uh, George W. Bush administration. So this was a man, I, I, I covered Max Cleland closely over his entire political career, most of it at least. And the only thing I'll say first personally about him is that Max Cleveland had a remarkable zest for life. It was very infrequent to find him in bad humor. He came at you with energy and a smile, almost always a bad joke on his lips. He wore a Mickey Mouse watch. Uh, everywhere he went, and he told people that he wore it because he wanted to remind everyone that uh, he shouldn't take life too seriously. Um, so he was a remarkable public servant, and um, I think Roy Barnes made one of the most telling comments about him in, a, in an obituary that's just been published by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Roy Barnes, the former governor, said that he thought Cleveland was one of the most remarkable guys he had ever met where I was quoted as saying, what happened to him would have destroyed most men, but he persevered through it and prospered, which he certainly did. Um, Tamar, um, I know that you did not have the opportunity to cover him when you were up on the Hill, um, but you certainly know his legacy. 
Sure. And, and he represents kind of a dwindling or, you know, well, now kind of a dwindling number of veterans serving on Capitol Hill. It used to be very common um, to come across World War II veterans um, or or anyone who'd served in the armed services as kind of a way to get you involved into politics. Um, and that number has been dwindling over the last several decades. And when he joined the Senate, he was one of about six Vietnam veterans uh, who was serving at the time um, alongside people like John McCain, John Kerry, uh, Chuck Hagel, who of course would go on to become Secretary of Defense. Um, and to me, kind of a sign of, of an old Washington that's died <laughs> a, a swift death over the last two decades, a group that really stuck together, even though it was bipartisan. Um, you know, when Senator Cleland was in a really nasty reelection battle in 2002, when he would ultimately lose, that group, including the Republicans, stuck up for him um, and, and rallied around him. And I don't think that's something you would necessarily see today. <clears throat> I think that's really an important point. You know, um, Chuck Bullock, you, of course, would have dealt with Max Cleland during your long career in um, in your work. But I, I'll tell you one story that stands out for me. When John Kerry, uh, Max supported uh, the Democratic presidential candidates who had served in Vietnam to kind of pick up on what Tamar's saying. He, he worked hard for Bob Kerry's election in the 1992 presidential race. Uh, and then in 2004, got very involved in the John Kerry uh, campaign for president. And Chuck, I'm not sure if you knew this, but at one point when when Republicans were running there or a group of anti-John Kerry uh, uh, pack was working against John Kerry, they, public, they, they put out the Swift Boat ads, which really attacked mm -hmm. Kerry in the most demeaning and unpatriotic terms. And and Max Cleveland actually went to George W. Bush's ranch to try to talk to him about how offensive those ads were and to make a point that George W. Bush should disavow them. That never did happen, but it's kind of telling of what Tamar's talking about. Chuck, your thoughts? Yeah, well, Max and I are very much contemporaries. Uh, year he graduated from high school in Lithonia, I graduated from high school in Tucker, so two of the rural DeKalb County schools. I saw him very soon after he was uh, out of rehabilitation, and he came and talked to one of my classes. Um, and he did that a number of times over, over the years. And you're right. Uh, he was always very upbeat and encouraged uh, the students to get involved in public service. Uh, and this, as I say, he began this before he was in public service himself, other than having served in the military, before he went to the, the state senate. So, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, remarkable career, given especially the kind of uh, challenges he had to overcome. He, you know, at one point he could drive himself, but I think he gave up on that pretty soon. And so there, after that, he had to be have someone who take him around, take his wheelchair around. When he first came back, he actually tried to get around on crutches, and that, that was very, very difficult for him. Yeah, um, there are a couple of connections to political rewind that I definitely want to mention. He was he and Jim Galloway were very close. And in the last couple of years of Max's life, Jim was regularly going to visit Max to try to buoy him up, to talk politics with him. I kept saying to Jim, would you please encourage Max to come on Political Rewind? And Max wanted nothing to do with talking about uh, politics, but Galloway was a very close and devoted friend of his. So our hearts go out to Jim today. And Patricia Murphy, now the AJC's political columnist who you hear on this show every week, uh, worked for Max Cleland on Capitol Hill. So we're thinking about our friends and <laughs> colleagues from this show today, as well as all of those who loved 
uh, Max. One last thing, uh, Mariella, you'll, you didn't know Max, but as a journalist, I think you would appreciate the fact that Max Cleland was one of those politicians who understood that there were times when people like me were going to uh, be less than enthusiastic in the way we covered him. We might criticize something that he had done. Um, we might say something kind about an opponent that he was dealing with or a policy that he was dealing with, the Secretary of State or when he was in the U.S. Senate. He never, ever took it personally. You could have a conversation with Max in which he would be as warm and uh, friendly and laugh with you after reading something or watching something you'd done. And those kinds of politicians are even rarer today than ever before. Yes, and, and you know what? As uh, someone who came from another country, uh, looking at his example of service, of public service, was something that I, even before I started working in the media in the United States, I, I started noticing how valuable that was, how honorable, uh, and the kind of um, politics he was involved in. It was a great example uh, for me to see that, and like Carmen was saying, now we we rarely see those examples anymore in mm. our political landscape. Um, thank you for that, Maria. You know what, uh, Sam? Let, let's just get a break out of the way before we continue with the show today and talk politics. Um, and as we do, just um, a remembrance of the extraordinary life of Max Cleveland, died last night of heart failure at age seventy-nine. We'll be back in a moment. Well, redistricting, we all know, is well underway at the state capitol, and it's moving rather swiftly last week with uh, uh, very little time having passed between the introduction of the map and the House, the Senate, uh, Senate committee voting on it. The Senate is moving full speed ahead on their new uh, map. Uh, Democrats are complaining the process should slow down a bit because they feel they need more time to study what's happening. Meanwhile, um, Tamar, it's interesting that on the House side, um, House leaders are getting some pushback from some Republicans that uh, they are being denied the chance to vote for the representative uh, they want. And, and they're talking about Philip Singleton, who is a Republican in Sharpsburg, who's been a significant critic of David Ralston during his tenure. And um, as, you know, possibly, we imagine as payback uh, for that, uh, the first map that we've seen from the House shows uh, Singleton's district moving away from Coweta, Sharpsburg, where he had won a lot of support, and putting him in a district with a Democrat in South Fulton, uh, Mandisha uh, Thomas. And so there are all these Republicans who showed up to complain about this yesterday. Yeah, there's a great, a great quote from a voter at one of the, the forums yesterday saying, don't California my Coweta. Um, yes. And what's interesting is for the most part, a lot of the criticism that we've seen during this redistricting process, of course, Republicans are in the majority, so they're in charge of redrawing all of these lines. We've mostly heard criticism from Democrats and, and kind of groups aligned with them. Um, so it's interesting to see a little bit of Republican blowback. Um, and I mean, there's always going to be some, um, 
you know, some internal politics involved in, in a lot of this. You never want to uh, get on the bad side of these, these leaders who are, who are drawing the maps. And you can, as you mentioned, uh, he didn't exactly have the best relationship with Speaker Ralston. So it'll be interesting to see how much this map shifts, if at all. Um, uh, for the most part, though, it's a lot of Democrats who are going to be, um, you know, kind of dealing with shifting boundaries and potentially having to run against former um, or sorry, uh, against colleagues. Um, it all, they also seem to be pretty mindful about, um, you know, if you were going to pit two incumbents against each other, doing it in a district where one of the incumbents is going to retire or run for another office. So part of it's to be expected. Chuck Bullock, uh, you literally wrote the, the book on redistricting. Your book, Redistricting the Most Political Activity in America, has been a definitive source for people looking at the politics of redistricting. Am I right, by the way, that you have a new edition of this of that book that came out just this year? Yes, right. Yeah, we brought a new one out this year. Um, yeah, if I knew you were going to mention that, I would have held a copy and hold it up for you. <laughs> yeah, there is a new edition, yes. It takes us through the, the, all the battles in the courts in the, the 2010s. Um, Chuck, so let's talk about um, <clears throat> one of the complaints that, um, that members of redistricting committees on both sides, the House and the Senate, heard during their tour of cities in the state when they went out last summer was they heard from people who said, please don't break up our communities. Don't break up our city. Um, we need to be represented by a single uh, person. And one of the complaints that was aired down at the Capitol the other day came not just from those Coweta voters, but people in Fayette County who said to legislators, why there, does this map, at least the first version of it, divide our uh, county into four House districts. And uh, one of the quotes that uh, we heard about that was from uh, a Suzanne Brown of Peachtree City. She said, if this committee is controlled by Republicans, why are you doing so much less damage than the Democrats proposed? And she was wearing a shirt, Chuck, that said, we're not going to take it anymore. You can do better for us. Chuck? Yeah, and uh, Coweta, which you just mentioned, is divided into five units. And what's particularly interesting is that in neither of those counties is there a district that is wholly within the county. And so they reach out beyond this. Now, this has not only to divide the community, but it also has some implications for passing what's called local legislation. Local legislation deals just with a single county, but you usually need to get unanimous agreement among the legislators who represent that county, unless it's really a big one like Fulton or DeKalb, in which case they come with their own rules. So by having like five different people having an or in uh, Coweta and four in Fayette, and if you then end up with a divided partisanship, it may be harder to get that kind of unanimous agreement to pass local legislation. Jennifer? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there are a couple of principles that are being debated here and what's getting the political attention are from the legislators and those who are losing their districts are being pitted against each other, certainly. Uh, but representing communities um, together is a very important one. And the other one is the competitiveness, though, of, of districts and of the entire state. And I think that's getting attention by looking at the maps. And is it uh, competitive? Are there enough competitive districts? And are there enough? Is it balancing out the general Democratic and Republican uh, popularity in the state and representation of those um, two parties? Yeah, you know, it, 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 let me let me just um, reiterate some an aspect of this, and Chuck, go back to you on this for a moment. 
the argument that, that voters make is that when you when you create district lines that take in broader geographies and take in people who are completely unlike I am, you're not allowing me to have a real voice in choosing the representative who is in touch with my needs, my concerns. So this isn't just a matter of some sort of, you know, uh, morality play going on under the General Assembly. It has an an impact on how people's voices are heard at their state capitol and in in the House of Representatives at the U.S. Uh, Capitol. Well, yeah, and especially we're talking about, say, a small rural candidate gets split several ways. And their argument is, you know, we'd have a hard time commanding a lot of attention from a single legislator. And now that you've split us multiple ways, you know, we are, are not going to be able to get any attention from any one of the two or three legislators who represent us. Now, put this in historical context, up until the early 1960s, counties were the entire basis of representation. You know, everything was based mm-hmm. upon you, your county, your representative. So we've completely come away from that now. And, you know, to the extent that people are still kind of reaching back to that, I mean, that's something which, you know, the legislature has moved far, far beyond using the county as, as a basis of representation. Mariella, one of the um, issues that hangs over redistricting in, in a number of states, in Georgia's part of this, Texas is certainly a dramatic example, is that since the last census, there has been such a major shift of populations of minority communities, so many more Hispanics now uh, living in the state of Georgia, Asians living here as well. And, and I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, the Hispanic community will look very carefully to see how, how their voice is going to be heard, how their power uh, will be uh, respected and recognized as districts are drawn. Yes, and you know, the effort that uh, many uh, grassroots organizations are doing is in educating the Hispanic community because uh, the way of redistricting uh, is something very, the gerrymandering is, is an American concept. We, we don't have those issues in most Latin American countries. So, uh, there, I don't know if the, the media took notice of this, but on my show last weekend, I, I had a, a story regarding the Hispanic Federation and the Southern Coalition for Social Justice because they announced their first bilingual redistricting academy. And it is, uh, uh, you know, they created this academy to engage Latino voters, to empower Latino communities, to advocate for district maps that reflect the diversity that you were mentioning. Uh, you know, they have a number of ways of reaching the Latino community. They have classes in Spanish and in English. Uh, they are talking about the basics of redistricting. Uh, they are teaching them how to build winning coalitions. Uh, they, they also are teaching people how to uh, build campaigns that are uh, focused on digital uh, communities, you know, that people who, Latino voters who consume a lot of social media, et cetera. So I think uh, that is what you're saying is absolutely right. Uh, many organizations are trying to uh, teach this new uh, constituency about redistricting because it's a concept that many people in our community are, you know, they're unaware of. Tomorrow, we should point out that in the House map that I'm talking about, the, the first draft of the House map, and we don't know how it may change in the days ahead, um, it, 
the, the House leaders, the Republicans who control the committee, are in fact um, recognizing that Democratic growth has uh, grown in the state and that especially in rural areas, uh, Republicans have diminished in terms of their power. And so this first Republican map actually reduces the number of Republican-leading de- uh, districts from 103 to 97. Um, Democrats would argue they, they deserve many more seats than that. But at least Republicans are acknowledging a, a little bit that Democrats, in fact, deserve more representation in the state. Yeah, I mean, you talk to Democrats and you look at what they proposed, and they they were proposing something closer to a 50-50 split. There are, are of course, 180 seats in the the state house, so it'd be closer to 90-90. And right now, uh, Republicans would give Democrats nine, or sorry, would give themselves 97. Um, And it's not nearly as kind of drastic as some of the maps that we've seen in places like um, Texas or or even North Carolina, um, you know, where Republicans could capture something like 11 of 14 congressional seats. But uh, still, if you're the party in power, and this has always been the case, even when the Democrats led the legislature, you're going to do what you can to preserve um, to preserve your your advantage in the state. And so far, the Supreme Court has indicated they're going to leave most of this line drawing to um, you know, to these legislatures. So, so really, it's up to the Republicans to decide what they want and and what they can get get away with in terms of the Voting Rights Act. Chuck, yeah, I think what's what's driving the Republicans here is they're, you know, when you draw this map, you're not just drawing it for 2022, 2024. You're really drawing a map you hope is going to work for your party for 10 years, and so you're anticipating you know, what kind of changes may take place. That's hard to do. But Republicans right now are saying, let's give up some ground at this point, uh, probably on the north side of Atlanta, particularly where there were those districts that were narrowly retained by Republicans in 2018 and 2020. Try to then pull out the the Republican vote probably on the north side of one of those districts, add it to a district still further north in hopes that you can bolster it for 10 years. And then on the south side, say, here, Democrats, we're going to give you this one. Uh, we may even pack it. We may just make it so so democratic. We aren't even really going to have a serious challenge there. One other thing, too, uh, just keep in mind, just talking about population change in Georgia, between 2010 and 2020, the white population in Georgia physically declined. There are fewer whites here today than there were 10 years ago. So all of the growth, I mean, we added a million people plus during the last decade. Those are all minorities. Yeah. Yeah, but but we're not going to see a map that reflects that in uh, Metro Atlanta in many ways. We'll see, but it's unlikely. Jennifer, I, I always think it's important to point out that this is the first redistricting for any state in the country that comes uh, after the Supreme Court declared preclearance to no longer be uh, 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 viable, no longer legal. That the states that, like Georgia, that used to be covered by pre-clearance for, uh, from the Department of Justice, according to the Supreme Court, we've all made so much progress, uh, we don't need that anymore to protect minority voters. Um, but uh, uh, in fact, uh, at, at the other aspect of that is that the Supreme Court all along has said, yes, we will protect you um, if if you bring a suit after redistricting is done, if we see racial ethnic discrimination, but partisan partisan gerrymandering is fine with us, that we don't want to get involved. Jennifer? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that certainly opens the door to um, the confluence of racial gerrymandering with partisan gerrymandering 
um, particularly for African Americans who tend to vote more Democratic. Latinos and Asians are a little more split between the parties. But what might be gerrymandering, so it's, so it's a little bit hard to distinguish. If we're going to pack Democrats, uh, are you also packing Blacks or vice versa? Yeah. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think that the Supreme Court certainly opens the door um, for extreme partisan gerrymandering, but it will be intertwined with race. And so what Republicans are taking uh, care of or, or being aware of is the possibility of litigation that still remains under the Voting Rights Act, um, under Article 2, to look at any racial discrimination in terms of their representation. With that question in mind, the you know where I'm really looking is the the second congressional district in Southwest Georgia, um, the district that that Sanford Bishop has held for something close to to 30 years. He's a a centrist. Uh, he's a centrist black Democrat um, and one who's in his 70s and and might you know who knows might be thinking about retirement at some point. Uh, that's also you know his district encompasses a lot of the black belt uh but it's also one of the the more politically competitive districts that i think republicans are eyeing and it might be tempting for them to want to take over that district in the years to come so that's something I, i'll be watching as the legislature goes through that map mariella yes and one of the things that um latino advocates are saying after the results of the census to point out to what uh, Professor Bullock was uh, pointing to, the growth uh, on minority communities, uh, the Latino advocates are saying that it's undercounted that even though those numbers show 31% of the growth uh, has been on the Latino population, uh, the activists are saying that the pandemic and some of the policies from the Trump administration, the rhetoric specifically, harm uh, Latino representation in the census. So those numbers are going to be, the, the figures, actual figures are bigger than uh, what we are seeing reflected. Um, Chuck, we, we've seen uh, that Senate map that Republicans put forward. Why, and, and we've now, you know, see what Democrat, what, what House members, House uh, Republican leaders are looking at doing. Um, they say they're moving quickly. Uh, because the census data came so late that they have to get these maps done fast. But um, they're doing it without an, a lot of input from the public, and certainly Democrats aren't getting much of an opportunity to look at the maps. Is that the sort of thing that backfires in the long run on a party if they if they appear to be railroading these maps? Railroading alone probably isn't going to cause you any problems. Now, are you going to get sued? Yeah, sure, you're going to get sued over over this. But uh, the fact that you move quickly, probably not not a, not not going to something going backfire on you. Back to that second district, though, you know, part of the problem for for that district was it was the most underpopulated in the state. So you had to go and find about a hundred thousand new people. So whatever happened, Sanford Bishop was going to have to go out and introduce himself, or will have to introduce himself to a lot of new folks. Uh, I think the real difference that Democrats have in that is they would prefer not to see that district go into Harris County, which is the north side of Columbus, which is a suburban county, and suburban counties tend to be very Republican. They'd prefer that it take in more of the area between, say, Columbus and, and Macon, where you could have gotten some more more of the black belt into it. But probably any way that you approach it, that district is going to come somewhat whiter. And during much of his career, Sanford Bishop has represented a majority white district. Uh, so he is 
he has been successful at that. You know, is he going to be uh, successful going out and introducing himself to these new folks? We'll see next summer. Or it could be, of course, and this happens to some people. You give them a really different district, and they're looking at, you know, getting up in age and a hot summer of walking streets and knocking on doors. They might say, you know, it's been a good run. I think <laughs> I don't need to spend the summer out doing that. So, Jennifer, what, as long as we're talking about Sanford Bishop, um, he uh, is being targeted now as a result of the Virginia election, uh, the surprise victory of Republicans there. The National Republican Campaign Committee, the NRCC, has expanded the list of targets, uh, uh, incumbents that they want to go after uh, next year. And Sanford Bishop is now being targeted, which means they're going to pour money and resources into defeating him down there. I just turn it over to you, but say in mm-hmm. at the same time, he, as Chuck Bullock points out, he's been very popular down there. Uh, he's you know head, head of the agriculture or on the agriculture committee. He's been devoted to farmers. It's going to be interesting to see if he really can be unseated. Yeah, exactly. And I think he really represents the old style of politics, where representatives, you know really represented their constituency um, many times, regardless of the overall uh, partisan content of that. In other words, people might still vote for their representative that they knew and trusted, even if they were voting for the other party for president or senator. Um, But that old style is declining rapidly as we nationalize our politics. And the national parties are not only trying to interfere as you're saying, trying to you know intervene and control what's happening, but the messaging is being nationalized, and so no longer are the local issues and the local relationships dominating, which was was true for a long time in American politics. And I think that's part of our problem today with our polarization is this nationalization of media messages, campaign messages, and donors. Donors are coming from all over the country, pouring in money through the parties and independently and trying to affect these races for their own partisan agendas. Yeah, Professor McCoy is exactly right. Um, Sanford Bishop is about as old school as it gets. Um, Not only is he kind of this even keeled (laughs) centrist who can kind of be boring on purpose. As a journalist, I, I just found he was just so even keeled, so kind of go with not go with the flow but so even keeled that sometimes i was like come on dude <laughs> but at the same time he's a, he's a senior he's a senior appropriator you know he runs the the uh the subcommittee that that um you know helps give money you know fund the department of agriculture he the man knows how to bring home the bacon and you read his press releases and it's all about look at what i did for this community look at the millions of dollars that i was able to help harness to bring down to southwest georgia and i think that's a smart strategy and i'll be curious to see just how nationalized republicans can make this when after almost 30 years in Washington and even more in the legislature, he's built a lot of relationships and he has many Republican allies, including people like Sonny Perdue. So it'll be really interesting to see. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Chuck Bullock points out if he's got new people that he's got to try to reach, it could be problematic for him. But on the other hand, it's possible NRCC is putting is apparently going to put money and resources into a campaign. They're going to have a hard time actually winning. Chuck, another change, as long as we're talking about the uh, results of Virginia and how they affected uh, are affecting Georgia. I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, the day after 
the Virginia election results, um, Larry Sabato's crystal ball moved the Raphael Warnock Senate race from leans Democratic uh, to a toss-up. Now, that can change 18 times between now and uh, November of 2022. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, Sabato's people think that maybe the state is trending a little back to, to the right now. Well, it might, yeah. Uh, in Virginia, we thought of as being more towards the Democratic Party than Georgia. Georgia, perhaps number two behind Virginia here in the South. And so if you can flip Virginia, as happened, then sure, Georgia would seem to be vulnerable. There, of course, are a number of kind of significant differences. And uh, one probably has to do with uh, whatever role Donald Trump is going to play. Now, Youngkin, you know, found a very narrow course he could go through so he could attract the Trump voters Trump loyalists. But on the other hand, he did not fully embrace Trump, and so he didn't have to worry about alienating that critical vote of white suburban women. That's going to be harder, I think, for Republicans to do here in Georgia, because Trump has been saying for quite some time his top priority is to defeat Brian Kemp. And there are increasing rumors that uh, that uh, David Perdue is going to pick up on that Trump invitation and so would join the Trump team. So if that happens, then Trump's got a candidate for senator, governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state. He's going to spend a lot of time in Georgia. What's also different about Youngkin and what's happening in Georgia is that Youngkin didn't have to go through a primary. Here in Georgia, each of these Republicans are going to have to fight his way through a primary, and that's going to push them to the further to the right. Uh, whether they embrace Trump or not, they're going to move to the right. Now, you know, if uh, so it's, it's going to be harder for a Republican to be able to say, yeah, I kind of like Trump, but I'm not Trump's, Trump's person. Here in Georgia, they're going to come out completely covered with Trumpism. And so it's going to be able to use that. Democrats are going to be able to use that as they did in 2021, earlier this year and last year, to motivate the Democratic vote to come out and vote anti-Trump by voting against Republicans, which McAuliffe couldn't do in Virginia. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point, um, Chuck, that, that I was thinking of as as well. It's a very different process in Virginia that – you know, convention electing them rather than the open primary is crucial. But, you know, I, I've always thought Georgia, even since the 2020 runoff elections with two Democratic senators, was still a toss-up state because it's, yeah. it's a very close state. So, you know, that didn't yeah. surprise me at all that Larry Sabato would change it to, to, to a toss-up mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. thought it was. But there's another <laughs> really interesting thing and and important difference with uh, Georgia coming up, and that is the role of Georgia in the middle of the Trump, uh, you know, questions about the elections and the role that both Kemp and Raffensperger played in in defending Georgia's elections, the integrity of the elections against Trump's big lie, and now the lawsuit coming up uh, with Trump involved. You know, that's Mm going to really be an interesting twist for the Georgia primaries as well and the role of Trump in this in this uh, campaign over the next year. You know, that's an interesting point, Mariella, uh, that, that b- both Chuck and Jennifer make. Um, Yankin, another difference between Virginia and Georgia is that, um, uh, you know, Terry McAuliffe could not run an anti-Trump campaign successfully in Virginia, in part because Trump hadn't been, uh, uh, you know, all over questioning the legitimacy of the Virginia uh, uh, vote up there. And so McAuliffe, in some ways, didn't really have a very specific kind of ammunition to use against the pro-Trumpers. Here in Georgia, 
Um, Democrats can conjure up the image of Trump as calling it a fake election, demanding that Republicans uh, show fealty toward him, which most of them on the ticket have done. And it might make an anti-Trump campaign somewhat more uh, 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 palatable. We might make it a better idea for Democrats here than it was in Virginia. Yes, I agree with that. And I also think that it's a very perilous uh, terrain for the Republican Party uh, because, uh, yeah, Donald Trump is going to potentially be all over the elections here in Georgia. He already uh, is a strong endorser of Marshall Walker, and, uh, you know, he is a detractor of Secretary of State Raffenberger and uh, the national attention that uh, the book is getting, uh, the Secretary of State book and the upcoming uh, trial, uh, I think is is interesting to, to see what's going to happen. Uh, and certainly the... Uh, the, the Democratic base has a reason to to show up in the upcoming election. So, but we live in uncertain times, and also <laughs> what's going to happen in the future with national politics might have an effect in our state. So, I, I really is a crystal ball <laughs> uh, prediction what what I'm talking about. I, I don't know what what's going to happen. Mariello makes a good point. There's so many other factors that that can shape the midterms beyond Donald Trump. Um, and some issues that that Glenn Youngkin was re- really able to capitalize on in Virginia could potentially still be, um, you know, on the front burner next year. Things like inflation, COVID-19, um, critical race theory, the role of parents in shaping a child's education. All of those could be factors next year. Um, it'll be worth kind of looking at things like inflation, supply chain problems. Is the economy still kind of wonky? What's the situation with COVID-19? Will the public perceive that Joe Biden is doing a better job than they are right now with his approval ratings? There are also other issues out there that really could come to the forefront um, next year, especially at the Supreme Court um, you know, taking up Mississippi's challenge to Roe versus Wade, if they ultimately overturn Roe or if they do anything to significantly chip away at abortion rights, I could see that being a huge rallying cry for Democrats and really kind of a a moment where they can get some energy and sort of unify. So we really don't know what the situation is going to be like next year, but there are a ton of issues that that could impact all of this. And that's why I wake up ever. Yeah, go ahead, Chuck. Well, one thing I think we know for sure is that nobody in Georgia, no Democrat in Georgia is going to say that parents shouldn't have a role in determining what their schools are going to do. And I think that was really what kind of took all the air out of the McAuliffe balloon. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're not going to have that. Uh, it was, one, yeah, one of the worst unforced errors that we can think of in recent political campaigns. Um, all right. Before we get to a break, I want to turn to uh, uh, the story that the New York Times broke in which uh, the AJC uh, refers to in the jolt this morning, uh, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, is apparently on the verge of deciding uh, whether she will appoint a special grand jury to investigate, uh, determine whether President Trump, uh, as president, violated criminal statutes by trying to influence the outcome of the George election last year, in part, his phone call to Brad Raffensperger, um, so I want to talk about that a little. Chuck Bullock, let me start with you on this. Um, 
Brookings issued a report on this whole idea last month. They looked very carefully at the things they said that Donald Trump did here in Georgia to try to overturn the results. And here's what they said. We conclude that Trump's post-election conduct in Georgia leaves him at a substantial risk of possible state charges predicated on multiple crimes, uh, including criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, intentional interference with performance of election duties, conspiracy to commit election fraud, fraud, criminal solicitation, and state RICO uh, violations. Um, That sounds like serious business, Chuck. Well, it does, yeah. And if there is a, a trial, a hearing on this, you know, it'll make Trump a martyr in the ideas of the eyes of people who are already on his side. But it also is going to then make him front and center when it comes to the election process. And uh, we remind some folks who maybe weren't paying attention or forgotten exactly what he was trying to do. And I think that's going to then you know, set a fire under those people who were offended by him last year. And you know, that, again, would be a good mobilizer for, for Democratic voters. Jennifer? Yeah, definitely. It's going to be fascinating because it's going to really put Kemp and Raffensperger in a difficult spot, I think, in Georgia, because clearly they will be at the center. In fact, the reporting was Raffensperger would be a star witness. And, you know, if a trial comes forward um, and he's got his book out about it, you know, defending the process. And yet Trump overall is still very, you know, extremely popular and the the belief, the number of Republicans, the percentage of Republicans that profess to believe that the election was fraudulent, last, that he lost, is still extremely high. And so, you know, while nationally, I don't think that new revelations are going to have that much effect on, on the base supporters um, that, that are close to Trump, in Georgia, it's going to be really tricky uh, for the Republicans to thread this needle, I think. And for those Republicans, particularly, as I think, Kim Raffensperger, who are defending the election, but still want the Trump base to vote for them. We know that Brad Raffensperger has already turned over all of his notes and a a lot of information from that phone call uh, to the uh, House committee that's investigating January 6th to get a sense of how involved uh, Donald Trump may have been in the uh, in the insurrection there. Uh, but he also, in his book, said this. For the office of the Secretary of State to recalculate, which is what Trump was asking him to do, would mean we would somehow have to fudge the numbers. The president was asking me to do something I knew was wrong. I was not going to do that. And then he said, I felt then and I still believe today that this call from Trump was a threat. So we're going to watch how all that unfolds. Uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And it was what I started to say a minute ago is the fact that we don't have any idea what might be happening in 2022 as events uh, continue to unfold. It's one of the things that makes me so happy to wake up every morning and get to talk to people on panels like this one who have such smart analysis to offer to everybody. Let's take our final break of the show and we'll be back with more in a minute. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Our uh, panelists today, uh, Jennifer McCoy, political science professor at Georgia State University, Mariella Romero, community empowerment director at Univision, Charles Bullock, political science professor at the University of Georgia, and uh, Tamar Hallerman, 
who is uh, with us on uh, Tuesdays. Um, Tamara, I was really a little surprised when I read the other day, and I think it was probably in the AJC, that the uh, mayor's election in Atlanta, that this year is the first time in basically two decades that Kasim Reed has not been involved as the runoff unfolds in a mayoral race. And, of course, what we're, what we're talking about is that back all those years ago, he was uh, Shirley Franklin's, uh, ca- he ran her campaign, so uh, he wasn't an active candidate at first. And, of course, their falling out may have had some impact on what happened to Reed uh, in the uh, mayor's race here. But what, do you, what, do, what should we make of the fact that we essentially have uh, uh, Felicia Moore, city council president, she's been in politics a long time, facing off against Andre Dickens, younger, a uh, member of the city council, but in, but in ways they both kind of represent a turn of the page in terms of the older generation that has dominated city of Atlanta politics, right? I mean, yes and no. Neither one of them is a newcomer to city politics. Felicia Moore has been on the city council for something like two decades. Andre Dickens has been around on the city council for for a while as well. So not completely new, but also you're absolutely right. I mean, Kasim Reed now, I mean, if if that wasn't a message from the voters that they didn't want him, I don't know what is. Um, And so I'll be curious to see the kind of role that he takes in the runoff, if any at all, because still about 22% of voters did ultimately turn out for him um, earlier this month. And I'll be curious to see if he does try and make any sort of endorsement. Although, of course, he and... um he and Andre Dickens uh, had plenty of dust-ups during the campaign, and it wasn't exactly friendly between him and Felicia Moore either. Um, but quite a few voters on the southwest side of Atlanta uh, who supported him, who will be looking for for new candidates. So that will be curious as well. I wonder if he'll want to stay involved in city politics at all um, going forward uh, after that drubbing that he got last week, or if, if we expect him to turn the page and move somewhere or do something else. Um, Jennifer, uh, certainly Tamar's right that both of these candidates have had an involvement in city politics. But that older generation, the Andy Youngs, who used to have such an enormous impact on how yeah. voters looked at, at candidates for mayor, uh, those days are gone. That is the older, he's, he represents that older generation that used to have an, uh, in, and Kasim Reed uh, traces his lineage all the way back to being a young man who Andy cultivated. Yeah, exactly. Though, as you noted, uh, Kasim was, you know, running Shirley Franklin's campaign and then they had a split. So Shirley Franklin, um, you know, was not supporting uh, Kasim Reed. And there's been, I think, bad blood between them for for some time. So so here we have Andre Dickens coming up, um, you know, in kind of that line. So I I, I think it is interesting. It's not I I, I agree with Tamar. It's not completely um, gone, but certainly we're seeing. a, a new generation. I think that's really healthy. Yes, and, and one of the things also to point out uh, is that Felicia Moore and Andrew Dickens represent an anti-Kasim Green sentiment that is that is there in, in the minds of the voters of Atlanta. Uh, Felicia Moore has, uh, to her credit, a uh, reputation for being someone uh, with, with high ethics, et cetera. And that's something that uh, the voters in Atlanta are looking for after, you know, scandals during the Kasim administration. And then Andre Dickens represents a look to the future. He uh, He's a guy that 
doesn't have a concrete path in the minds of, of the voters so people can uh, he, he can reach them better because he can adapt to uh, the new current in, in the minds of the voters. So uh, it, it, it's very refreshing to me to see those two candidates uh, going to the runoff. And, and Atlanta has a history of also supporting the underdog. And, and that is the role that Andrew Dickens is playing now. So, uh, Chuck, one of the things that I've suggested is a reason why the whole state needs to be paying attention to this race is Andre Dickens and Felicia Moore are both going to have to make the case for why they are the one who can deal better with the state legislature, with leaders at the state capitol. And that will be of particular importance as the issue of the city of Buckhead is uh, debated in uh, the session coming up, right? Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it's also going to be interesting to see because here, you know, to this point, they had a common enemy in Kasim Reed. They were both, in a sense, running against him. Now they've got to turn their guns on one another. So uh, that, that's going to be, I think, a bit difficult and uncomfortable for them, potentially. Um, Felicia Moore was way ahead, you know, was ahead by 15, 16, 18 points. You know, in addition to kind of a misspent youth studying redistricting, I also study runoff elections. And uh, <laughs> based upon you know, Georgia runoff elections, not city municipal ones, but other offices, a person who is as far ahead as uh, Felicia Morris has an 85% chance of winning in the runoff. We will watch that unfold, and we'll talk more about that race as it moves forward. We are really out of time. Uh, for today's show. Um, you know, I do want to mention tomorrow, because Jennifer McCoy, you set me up to be able to say this. We talked about the, the, in, the injection of national politics, partisan politics, in, in uh, or how it's influencing races. Well, tomorrow, we're going to talk about that with three Georgia mayors, Augustus Hardy Davis, Tifton's Julie Smith, and just reelected up in Sandy Springs, Mayor Rusty Paul. And we'll talk to them about many issues, but one of them will be just that, the partisan turn that many local races have taken, and we have saw that play out in this most recent election. So I hope you'll join us for that. So uh, Chuck Cook, uh, Jennifer McCoy, Mariela Romero, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a terrific conversation today. We'll be back with another show with the mayors uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, wear your mask uh, in, in uh, the right circumstances to protect yourself. And go out and get a booster shot if you're eligible to do just that. See you all tomorrow.